She looked at me and said, I'm taking the university exam next month. I don't have a chance to pass. I will have to live the rest of my life in this valley. Up next on the Crossing Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Crossing Ideas Podcast. I'm Mark Sassy, author of 12 novels, playwright, fortunate enough to win some awards, and an American who has lived half his life internationally. I've decided to use those experiences in this podcast as a lens of looking at the world of today. I'd be grateful if you check out my works at mwsassy.com. That's M-W-S-A-S-S-E dot com. Episode 10, Education in a Remote Valley. I heard that Mai Cho, a small remote village 100 miles west of Hanoi, was an interesting place to visit. So when my sister came to visit in Vietnam, uh, circa 2000, I decided to take her on a motorbike trip. So we saddled up on my little 110cc Honda, she on the back, me on the front, and we took off. And we pushed that little bike to the limit, not unlike the episode where I visited the, the waterfall up near the China border. We were on these mountain passes um, a good ways out of Hanoi, and I got a flat tire. A guy stops, a Vietnamese man, and we chatted in Vietnamese, and he assured me that he can take care of it. There is nobody around. There's just random vehicles that are passing. And so we didn't really have much choice. So he finally comes back after about 30 to 40 minutes, and he has an inner tube with him. And he actually changes the tire, and he charged us 300,000 Vietnamese dome. And at the time, that was about about 20 U.S. dollars, which is a major ripoff. But anyways, he was one of those entrepreneurs who was taking advantage of the situation. And, well, good for him. I needed him because we needed to get going again. So we uh, we made it to the top of the mountain. And as, as we crested on the, on the top of the mountain, we finally had the view of Mai Cho Valley. The speckled, colored rice fields, serene like a heavenly breath of fresh air. It's really a magical mountaintop views. And we were taking photos with our cameras. No phones, by the way. These were real cameras back in the day. Then finally, we decided to coast down into the charming little village of Mai Cho. There were no reservations at the time. We just showed up to a small smattering of houses on stilts where the ethnic minority, the white Thai, lived, farmed, and grew rice. The Thai welcomed outsiders into their houses. It was a way for them to earn a small amount of money, you know, having tourists, especially foreign tourists from Hanoi, who wanted to get a slice of the country, countryside and country living and experience uh, some, some sort of a homestay, I guess you could say it. They all spoke Vietnamese, but not English at the time, not much. But it didn't matter. I knew Vietnamese. All was good. We parked the motorbike and introduced ourselves. They showed us where we could spend the night in one of their houses on stilts. Then they asked if we wanted them to cook us dinner. We did. There were no other restaurants around. They basically had a captive audience. So we booked our meals. Then they asked if uh, we wanted to have any some of the traditional ethnic Thai performances that they do. The singing and the dancing. We said, sure, let's do it. 
the evening came. We had our delicious meal. can't remember exactly what it was, but I'm sure it was delicious. Then my sister started to feel sick, and she quickly went down for the count. What about the performance? Couldn't cancel it now. So picture this. We're the only two people who have rented space in their house on stilts for the night. We've set up a private showing of this troupe that's going to come in and perform for us. But my sister is lying on the matted bamboo floor, keeled over with stomach pain and completely out of it. But the local troupe of about 15 performers or so packed the rest of the house for an audience of one, me. My sister is right behind me, trying to sleep it off, whatever she had, but they started singing. It was loud. And then they brought out the bamboo poles. They do all sorts of tricks with the poles, poles swirling around them and using it for different things. And then they started using them to make a hearty beat by pounding on the floor. Now imagine 10 men pounding large bamboo sticks on the floor in a rhythmic pattern. My sister and her upset stomach feeling every reverberation up and down like a seasick child in a boat, pounding, aching. She's in absolute misery. And there's me, all alone, sitting and smiling at the enthusiastic performance. I gotta admit, they didn't hold anything back just because the audience was small. At the end, I thanked them for the performance. They kept asking me if she was all right. I was like, yeah, she's fine, as, as she keeps getting up and running to the outdoor bathroom. It was quite a night. You don't really sleep well in a place like that anyways, not, not as a tourist. There are mats and blankets on the split bamboo floors that, that become the bed. At night, the animals were brought in, uh, meaning that they were tied up under the house on stilts, meaning that the animals, the water buffaloes especially, were directly below me as I was sleeping. They had their metal bells hung around their necks and they would clank around at times. And then early in the morning, around 5 a.m., the animals would wake up. And so would I. The roosters would start at it, and then the cows would start moving about and making noise. By sunrise, there was no reason to flop around anymore on the reed mats. I just woke up and went outside into the brisk morning air. The freshness of the morning takes you in, and I went for a walk in the silence through the rice paddies, looking up at the clouds hanging stiff off the top of the mountains. It's the type of morning that, that makes you forget that cities even exist. Or makes you think why cities exist if you can live in such an idyllic environment. But even though the, the white Thai minority group live mostly a, in daily obscurity from the hustle and bustle of Hanoi's chaotic streets, the reach of the city still finds them. Their existence still bears the impact of what happens in the political scene and, from what I came to understand, the educational scene. I believe it was after breakfast, I started chatting with one of the teenage daughters of the family. She was learning English and wanted to practice with me, a foreigner. That was a common occurrence. As I was able to morph the conversation into Vietnamese, I was able to find out a little bit more about her and what her daily life was like. She was 17. She went to a school in a village partway up into the mountains. She had to walk to school every day. There was no transportation. Now, I can't remember specifically how far of a walk it was, though I know it was an astonishingly long walk in my mind, well over an hour each way to get to her school. At her school, the facilities were meager. 
the teacher's inexperienced. What experienced, well-trained teacher would want to teach in a remote mountainous school? It would be a death sentence to your career. This girl was studying for the entrance exam to university. At that time in Vietnam, not totally sure if it's still the same today, there was a national entrance exam for universities in Vietnam. All graduating seniors would take the same exam, and then the state would determine, using the results of the exam, which university you would be accepted at, if you were accepted at all. I knew many students from my time in Hanoi and other places who would go to school all day and then enroll in a special tuition program where experienced teachers would prep them for the national entrance exam. In order to compete, you needed money for the extra classes. Many couldn't afford such a luxury. This girl told me that in the following month, she would be traveling to Hanoi to take the entrance exam. I was excited for her, but she said, I don't have a chance of passing. Why? Only a small percentage are accepted to university. The schools in Hanoi are much better. I will not pass the exam. She was so sure of herself that she would not pass. But are you going to try? I asked. Yes, she replied. She spent hours a day just walking back and forth to school, getting as good an education as the remote valley education system would allow. But she knew she could never compete with the students from the big cities. I asked her what she would do if she didn't get into university. She said, I'll go to Hanoi and take the exam. Then when I find out that I didn't pass, I will work in the rice fields. I will help my parents. I will live my life in my cho like my parents have. I have no choice. As an educator myself, I found this whole conversation to be sad and upsetting. Here's a bright girl that has a lot of drive and determination, but is stuck in a system that will not allow her to thrive or won't even allow her to move on to the next level. Part of the issue here had to do with the development of the country of Vietnam. In the year 2000, Vietnam was still pulling itself out of the effects of the war and the economic isolation of socialism in the years after the war. The educational system was not well developed, which is why foreigners like myself were invited to help train teachers. The number of universities were also sorely lacking. Only the best exam takers would have an opportunity for higher education. Private universities or colleges or joint programs with overseas counterparts were not yet given Vietnamese students more options. The exam system was really the gatekeeper for higher education. Whoever was best prepared, whoever had the money to learn under a great teacher, would have a better chance of moving on. This young teen in a remote valley from an ethnic minority never had a chance in the year 2000. Economic development had not yet provided enough opportunities for enough students. This whole scenario, of course, made me think of affirmative action, the idea of lowering standards for disadvantaged students so they might have more opportunities. Good idea or not? Well, a lot has been written and said about affirmative action over the years, especially in the context of the United States. But as I started comparing the situations, this girl and my Cho, and let's say an African-American teen from an inner city school in America, I realized that the situations are not remotely the same. In the first case, 
this young girl had no options. In the second case, the inner city student does. Let's break it down a little bit. Economist and social theorist Thomas Sowell has argued for years that affirmative action in the United States sets smart kids up for failure. And he has the data to prove it. His argument goes something like this. Black students who are admitted to Harvard, let's say, with a lower SAT score than is typically required, will have a much higher dropout rate than someone who meets the, sta the typical standard. That's not to say the student who drops out isn't a good student, isn't intelligent, far from it. Sowell argues that he or she would have met the standard of other very good schools and may have excelled in an environment that didn't have the rigor of an Ivy League school. The standards are there to make sure students will be able to excel and achieve their goals. Standards are colorblind. And there are other options that students have nowadays, from community college to state schools to online degrees. Diversity for diversity's sake needlessly sets some kids up for failure, argues Sowell. Also, what affirmative action has done in the United States has actually harmed some minority groups, especially Asians, who have been discriminated against by many of the Ivy League schools. Many Asians with higher scores, for example, have been passed over in favor of other groups with lower scores. There's an important case awaiting a verdict from the Supreme Court right now, which will decide if schools are allowed to continue their quotas for entrance based upon race. We shall see. Now, on the other side, not all schools are equal. That is absolutely true, even in America. There are many inner-city schools which cannot compete with private and suburban schools. But there are some things that I think can be done which could improve the educational system. I have four modest little ideas that I want to put forward myself. Now, you may disagree with them, and that's fine. And I think all of these points would be a great points open for debate. But I've wondered, would they help? Let's start with number one, zero tolerance of distraction in the classroom. If there are students who continually drag the entire class away from learning, that student should lose the privilege of going to school until he or she is able to conduct themselves properly. Isolate troublemakers. Let them learn online. Do not allow a handful of misbehaving students to threaten the education of an entire class. Two, allow teachers to teach. Remove the shackles of bureaucracy on the teachers and allow them to feel the passion and love for their occupation, which has been weakened by mandates and an ever-increasing minutia of requirements which have nothing to do with helping students learn in the classroom. Ask your teacher friend about this. Three, stop trying to squash charter schools and other innovative programs which enable all to have more educational opportunities. Give parents more freedom in deciding where their kids can go to school. Allow voucher systems to punish districts doing a poor job by allowing students to move more easily to other better performing schools. Four, put more emphasis on vocational skills and the trades and the many great affordable educational options available. Schools should not only be about preparing for college, schools should also prepare kids for life. You know, I didn't expect an enjoyable trip into the remote mountainous region of Mai Cho to spark ideas related to education. But that's the thing about learning, isn't it? 
You can learn from anyone in any location, and you don't have to have a degree in order to understand the reality of life in front of you. I often wonder what had happened to that young teen girl, the girl in my Cho. The girl in my Cho was in a very different situation than students stuck in bad schools in America. She had no other options, no community college, no private schools, no scholarship programs. She was destined to live out her life in the Mai Cho Valley. I can imagine her now in her late 30s, married with several kids of her own. Perhaps she now runs the hospitality industry of one of the houses on stilts. Maybe as the economics have changed, she has been able to earn more money. Maybe she is a teenager herself right now. And let's say she has a relative living in Hanoi, and she, she allows her teenage son to live with her relative. And she sends them money from her tourism business to help her child study in one of the extra tuition programs as he readies for the national entrance exam. Can you imagine the day that she learns that he passes? It wasn't meant to be for her generation. She tried. She gave it her best shot. But the odds were against her. But maybe, for her children, it'll be different. And that has been the driving force of immigrants and minority groups for centuries. Build a better life for your children. Not all dreams will be fulfilled. But if you can build a better life for your child, in the long run, I think you'll be pretty happy with how things turn out. I'm Mark Sassy. Thanks for listening. Up next on the Crossing Ideas podcast... My kids sang communist songs and other great ways to grow up. That's next on the Crossing Ideas podcast. Remember to subscribe for future episodes. Please share this program with those who would enjoy it. And once again, thanks for listening.